Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. After a record-breaking 2020 Atlantic hurricane season and this season's forecast to be above average, it might be a good time to get a grip on the tropics. In this case, GRIP is an acronym for Genesis and Rapid Intensification Processes and is the name of a NASA field experiment that was designed to understand how tropical systems form and develop into major hurricanes. Dr. Scott Brown worked on the GRIP project and joins us today for a deep dive into the project and other NASA research on hurricanes. Scott, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Glad to be here. Thanks. Well, this is this is awesome because Scott is a close colleague. I worked for it with him for many years at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. Let me give you a little of his background before we ask him the big question that we always start with. Uh, Dr. Brown, Brown is a research meteorologist at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland, and he specializes in hurricanes. Uh, he received his PhD at the University of Washington and is considered an expert in everything related to satellite, aircraft data, computer modeling, and general research on hurricanes and tropical processes. Uh, he's the project scientist for the Global Precipitation Measurement Mission, or GPM, which I'll certainly ask him about, uh, and the time-resolved observations of precipitation structure and storm intensity with constellation of small satellites, better known as tropics. Uh, he works at NASA, and I can assure you that Na uh, acronyms are a big thing there. Uh, he's also uh, the Goddard co-lead for the Decadal Survey Designated Observable Study for Clouds Convection and precipitation, and has also been a PI for things like the HS3 mission and others. We'll dig into all of this, but Scott, the first question before we get started, how'd you become a weather geek if you are one? How'd you get into weather? Is it a story where you're a kid? Oh, yeah, it's, it wasn't as a kid. Um, I kind of stumbled into it. I, was, uh, I went into college actually as an accounting major. I, I'm not quite sure why I decided on that. And in my first semester in signing up for classes, when I was in the gym, I was just looking at looking to fill out my schedule. I'd gotten most of my classes and needed just one more. So I looked around the gym. I saw a table that had two signs on it. One said geology, the other said meteorology. There was one person at the geology line, nobody at meteorology. So I went and signed up for meteorology. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. How fortuitous for our field because, you know, Scott has <laughs> gone on to become one of the most respected experts in tropical meteorology and hurricanes in our field. So just a short line <laughs> changed history of meteorology, it seems. So, you know, you did you do all of your work at UW, University of Washington, or was it just your graduate work? That was my graduate work. I was actually at... Uh, San Francisco State University, very small program at the time um, with, with just a couple professors, uh, but thanks to the tutelage of a, a great advisor there, I, I even had opportunities to do research as an undergraduate in uh, tornadoes in California, and that really got me interested in research and, and led to me eventually going, deciding to go to graduate school at the University of Washington. Now, talk to us a little bit about your graduate work. What, what was what was your topic? What was your research on there? 
There I was looking at data from a field campaign called Prestorm that was trying to understand uh, the development and structure of squall lines in the central US. Um, I had sort of come late into the, the project where a lot of analysis had been done of different storms from that campaign. And I basically tried to integrate previous work with um, newer methods to um, get more information out of the radar data, understand the microphysics of these squall lines and, and the relationship to the dynamics, and then ultimately how that fed back to the larger scale in, in terms of um, eventually the, the heating associated with that convective system, helping to form a low pressure system over the central US that then led to subsequent um, episodes of convection in the following days. So it was, it was a unique opportunity to be able to do something like that. And, and, and so it, it shows, I mean, you, you weren't, your, your initial work like mine uh, in graduate school wasn't the type of work I ended up doing later in my career. So, so you, I think people be, know you these days for your work with, yeah, I, I guess you're still kind of circled back to some of that, given your just broad involvement with TRIM and GPM, which brings me to NASA. And let me just take this opportunity to sort of remind the, the listeners of Weather Geeks that NASA, uh, you know, both of us worked as meteorologists at NASA scientists. We didn't launch, do forecasts for space shuttle launches. We weren't doing weather for astronauts and Mars. NASA has an Earth, very robust Earth Sciences division uh, that is, uh, thinking about using its resources, satellites, models, uh, and, and expertise to study the third rock, uh, planet Earth. And so I always like to calibrate people's thinking because I just don't know that people have a good sense of why NASA has Earth scientists and meteorologists and oceanographers and such. So th let's pivot to your time at NASA. Um, you know, we're gonna talk all about the things you're up to the, the, in recent times, but um, you came to NASA and as I recall, Scott, just from our time, we literally worked in the same <laughs> branch at NASA Goddard, our offices right down the hall from each other. But as I recall, I, I feel like much of your early work at NASA kind of skewed to the modeling side. Is that a correct assessment? Yeah, I, I started with modeling. In fact, prior to coming to NASA, I hadn't done anything with hurricanes. I had been doing the, the, the research related to convection and then winter storms. Um, and at the time I came to NASA, there was an interest in, in doing more related to hurricanes. And um, I, I had started doing some modeling work at the end of graduate school and during my uh, postdoc in uh, Colorado. Uh, and so kind of stuck with that for a while. And I was uh, trying to push one of the, the models to fairly high resolution, to do high resolution simulations of hurricanes down at sort of the kilometer scale. I uh, was one of the first to, to try to do that um, and, and got some really good results out of that. Um, and um, did that for several years. And, and then eventually I kind of realized that the doing st strictly modeling was, was sort of limiting in terms of the ability to go after funds and the types of things that NASA did. And so I eventually started looking at how I could use different satellite data sets to look at tropical cyclones. And in particular, the, the impact of the Saharan air layer, you know, this hot, dry, dusty air mass that comes off of the Sahara and potentially impact storms. And I, I was looking at a variety of different satellite data sets to try to characterize those events. Um, and, and then I've since I've done some modeling of those events as well. And we even did some field campaigns that included that at least as one of the topics uh, of focus. Well, let's, let's stay right there for a second. This is Weather Geek. So we like to geek out on weather topics. Um, we often hear uh, these days about these Saharan air layers 
during the midst of the Atlantic hurricane season. What's what's the best understanding right now on the science of how those uh, Saharan air layers impact hurricanes as they're coming across? Well, I think, you know, certainly a, a consensus seems to be that prior to Genesis, the Saharan air layer can have a suppressing influence on tropical cyclones. Um, you know, we get these big outbreaks of this hot, dusty air mass. It tends to suppress convection. Um, yeah, but we do see storms develop even in the vicinity of these outbreaks. So. Um, it's not clear what separates the developers from the non-developers. Uh, there's been some research that argues that the Saharan dust and the Saharan air layer, once a, a storm is formed into a tropical cyclone, can still have a negative influence. But my research has tended to show that it's a bit of a mix. It's, it's not clear cut. Um, th there's some research that suggests that actually um, it, like if the dust gets into the eye wall region, you can actually intensify the storm. But if it only gets into the outer bands of the storm, it may potentially weaken them. Uh, and some of the other mechanisms, you know, may or may not really have a, a driving influence. So I, I think it's still an area uh, where research is needed to better understand what happens after tropical cyclone formation. Um, and, and there's, you know, having some good healthy debate on that, I think is a good thing. Talking with Dr. Scott Brown from the uh, NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center as a research meteorologist there and the GPM uh, project scientist. And yeah, I think you just pointed to something which highlights why track forecasts have improved in the recent decades more so than the intensity forecast, because with our intensity forecast, there's so much that depends on what's going on under the hood, as we like to say, of these hurricanes in terms of the, the energetics, the dust and various things that we need specialized measurements, some of which uh, you've, you are now working on in terms of the types of observations from satellite platforms and from aircraft and so forth, because we really need to get those sort of, sort of in situ measurements or sort of near storm and measurements, even if it's from remote sensing platform. So I want to transition here. So uh, you, you transitioned your NASA career. At some point, I, I know you became the project scientist, uh, I believe, for the TRIM mission, the Tropical Rainfall Measuring Mission, which has a long history and legacy, starting with the legendary Joanne Simpson, who you and I both got a chance to work with and moving through Chris Kumaro and Bob Adler and various folks. And so you took over for that. Talk to us about what the TRIM mission was and why it set the stage for the GPM mission. Yeah, the, the TRIM mission uh, was an effort to measure tropical rainfall using the first ever uh, space-borne precipitation radar. Um, it, it was really designed uh, for more of a three to five year mission lifetime, but due to smart decisions by my predecessors, uh, it went on for um, 17 years, uh, largely because the altitude of the satellite in 2001 was boosted from about 350 kilometers to 400. Otherwise, the mission would have ended probably in the, the mid 2000s. Um, so having a, 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 an approximately 17 year record of precipitation in the tropics was extremely valuable because it allowed us to see uh, not only um, what the mean precipitation was over the tropics, but then how it varied uh, over time, like with uh, El Nino, uh, how it varied uh, over the course of the day, uh, and, and being able to look at it on fairly small spatial scales. You know, your ability to, um, to look at the details on smaller temporal and spatial scales really depends on having adequate samples to define the mean behavior. And that's really only possible when you have a long data record, like a 17 year record. Um, and, and so TRIM really, 
it, it was really at the forefront of precipitation measurement. It led to some early precipitation products that merged uh, microwave information from a constellation, uh, an informal constellation of satellites to get three hourly precipitation estimates across the, um, the tropics and mid-latitudes. Uh, and that eventually led to the motivation for GPM, which formalized that constellation um, and, and led to uh, improved measurements with a more advanced radar and microwave radiometer um, to intercalibrate all those other microwave sensors. And now we're producing global rainfall analyses uh, at a tenth of a degree resolution and half hourly. Uh, and it's, it's by far our most used data set, not only for research, but for many applications. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with Scott Brown from NASA. I want to start the process of digging a little bit into some of your hurricane activity now, more specifically, more recent. We tease the show by calling it getting a grip on the tropic. Shout out to our producers for coming up with that. And one of the things that we talked about is this mission, the Genesis and rapid intensification processes uh, campaign or so forth. Tell us all about it. What was, the, why did you do it? What was the point? Why are we spending federal tax dollars doing it? You know, the questions that some people often ask us when we do these things. Yeah. So, you know, over the years, NASA's done a number of field campaigns. Uh, typically they're, they're, they, they have two different foci. One is trying to better understand the processes within tropical cyclones. And often the other is doing validation of satellites. Uh, in this case, often uh, trim um, for grip. Um, with each campaign, we tend to have a different focus. And with the GRIP campaign, uh, it was really focused on intensification processes, particularly rapid intensification. Uh, you alluded earlier to the fact that we've had improvements in track forecasts. And I think that's largely due to the fact that track is governed typically by larger scales and more observable scales, whereas intensity and in particular rapid intensity change uh, is really is governed by those same large scales, but also by much smaller scales uh, on the scale of convective storms uh, within the storm. Uh, and so you need uh, measurements that are on those smaller scales uh, and on the time scales of, of those processes. And, and so getting aircraft into the storms is a key way of doing that. One of the unique features of the, the GRIP campaign that I was most excited about was that it was the first time 
that we use the unmanned Global Hawk aircraft, which is a, a high altitude, long endurance, um, uh, uninhabited vehicle um, that allowed us to get out over storms and stay over storms for very long periods of time. Now in the GRIP campaign, we were flying out of Southern California with the Global Hawk. So any storm in the Atlantic, you had a long ferry flight to get to it. Uh, we did a flight of Hurricane Carl in the Gulf and were able to stay over the storm for about, I think it was 14 hours. Wow. And if you look at an animation of the flight with other aircraft, because we had the DC, NASA DC-8, uh, there were NOAA aircraft out there, I think a WB, NASA WB-57, you see them all converge on the storm at the same time. And then all the other manned aircraft would go back to their bases. Maybe another NOAA aircraft would come out. And all the time, the Global Hawks just going out there and continuously taking measurements. So it was really the first opportunity to get these long endurance observations. And in this case, during the rapid intensification of Hurricane Carl. So it was a pretty amazing flight. Um, the GRIP campaign ended up uh, being a precursor to a mission that I led called the Hur Hurricane and Severe Storm Sentinel or uh, HS3. That was a three-year mission that was designed to use two different Global Hawks one geared toward measuring the environment and the other looking at uh, the inner core of the storm. Um, we had some challenges. We were, we were using very old uh, Global Hawk aircraft. We were using the first one ever built and the sixth one ever built. They were demonstration models. Uh, and the one that was our uh, what we called our overstorm aircraft that had the radar and some other instruments um, showed its age. Uh, <laughs> but the, the other aircraft performed amazingly well, we were able to do these long surveys of storms out in the Atlantic um, where we could either fully sample the broad environment of the storm uh, or really concentrate measurements down in the inner core of the storm. Uh, we even had some flights where we went all the way to uh, Cape Baird from uh, the Virginia coastline, um, flew for a couple hours and then came all the way back. I mean, that, that gives you a sense of the long uh, endurance of this aircraft. Uh, the other nice thing about the aircraft is it, it tended to fly above about 60,000 feet. So you were typically flying above the storms and getting a, a satellite view of the storm. Um, and, then, and then one of our most important observations were drop sons, which are typically released from lower flying aircraft, uh, but we were able to do it from above the storm. So we were getting profiles of the storms from these drop sons uh, from the lower stratosphere down to the surface for the first time ever. So, well, I, I should be careful. Not really the first time. The first time in terms of being able to do these broader surveys. We had done some flights earlier with uh, the ER-2 aircraft that could only fly for a limited time. And you maybe get, you drop a handful of drops on, but we were able to do up to about uh, more than 80 in a single flight, which is pretty amazing. And you, you talked about rapid intensification, and I, I know the 2020 hurricane season, we saw several storms. And yeah, I remember rapid intensification is a drop in pressure. So, and Scott, what is the actual amount of uh, this? Uh, it's defined, NOAA has a definition in terms of the drop in pressure over a 24 hour period, and it's escaping me right now. <laughs> yeah, I, I usually know it in terms of the change in wind speed as a change of 30 knots in 24 hours. Yeah, that, that's what I have in my head too, right? Yeah, I, I can never remember the, the pressure. Right, so 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 these storms like Hurricane Michael, for example, and that are approaching the coast and people were watching it maybe the day or two before and saw a Cat 3 storm and they 
perhaps wake up to a cat five storm. So that's what we talk about with rapid intensification. And there is study uh, research in the literature that suggests that climate change and global warming are leading to perhaps more uh, an uptick in rapid intensification events. So uh, I guess the big question that some listeners may be having is, what ultimately did GRIP help us do in terms of the rapid intensification problem? What do we know that we didn't know before? Oh. Or is that a loaded question? <laughs> well, no, it's just been a while since I've looked at it. I mean, one of the things that we saw in Hurricane Carl was the evolution of the warm core of the storm during that rapid intensification process. So as, as the storm is intensifying, that's usually due to the import of angular momentum down in the boundary layer that spins up the winds and then the uh, you, you get the warm core developing as, as a result and that helps to lower the the central pressure and so we were able to observe that over time um, and and relate that to the uh, changes in convection um, and, and there have been various modeling studies i think when you I tend not to look at those results in isolation from other yep. studies that have been done. I mean, it certainly provided unique observations that when you combine that with other field campaigns and, and modeling work that's been done, um, I think we're getting a clearer picture of the importance of, you know, certainly the warm ocean temperatures are a critical factor. Um, and then having a conducive environment uh, in which shear is relatively weak. Um, and, and other conditions tend to be fairly favorable. I, I, I often think of rapid intensification being the result of an absence of inhibiting influences as opposed to special factors making it happen. Um, one of the things that we often see, we saw this in GRIP and we saw this in other field campaigns, um, is that often prior to rapid intensification, a storm might be under the influence of shear and, and the vortex might be tilted in the vertical. Uh, and one of the things that often appears to occur right before rapid intensification is a, a realignment of the vortex so that it's more vertical. Uh, typically, that's probably associated with a, a drop in the wind shear, or it could be the result of a dynamic adjustment to the environment so that it sort of the storm maybe protects itself a little bit from uh, the surrounding shear. Uh, but once you get that realignment, we often see uh, convection start to surround the the forming uh, eye region. And, and as that happens, rapid intensification often ensues. Yeah, and I, I guess, you know, one final question on this rapid intensification, because you're one of the world's experts. What do you think we need? I mean, we're, to crack this nut, not only of rapid intensification, but the intensification lagging and skill that we talked about earlier. I mean, I, I, I think we, we all know what has to happen in terms of understanding what's going on in the inner core and and the in the near storm environment but if i mean if you had a magic wand and a magic technology stick uh, and you could sort of produce one thing or one new set of measurements what do you think we really need i mean again it's not one answer of course to really get us closer uh, to really the improvement we need on intensification yeah that's a good question i mean we've seen improvements in intensity forecasts over the, the recent years, uh, largely driven by improvements in the models as the models go down to finer resolution and better physics, um, but also as we find better ways to incorporate observations, whether from satellite or aircraft. Um, and so, you know, assuming that the models are going to continue to progress, um, the essential thing that's needed, I think, is getting better observations uh, in the core and and under and being able 
to better assimilate that those observations into the model. That, that's a really tricky thing to do uh, at those uh, smaller scales. You can run into adjustment problems in the model, I think, when you try to do a, a whole lot within the inner core. I, I think with satellite data sets, uh, improvements in the way we assimilate microwave data, going from clear sky assimilation to all sky assimilation may ultimately help. Um, I, I would envision though that if there was an observation that would have the biggest impact, it, it would be related to wind measurements uh, within the core, that if we had an ability to get better winds, not just at the surface, but above the surface, that could potentially be uh, transforming, but it's extremely difficult to do, um, from especially from space. Uh, so I'm not quite sure what the path is yet to, to be able to do that. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And I'm talking to one of my former NASA colleagues, uh, actually still a colleague, but we were actually at NASA together, Scott Brown, expert on hurricanes, um, a leader of uh, major ma- NASA Earth science missions. And so where I want to go next, it's what's next for NASA in terms of hurricane research. And then also I'm going to ask you after that a follow-up question about what's next in terms of precipitation measurement. Uh, what's, 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 what do we see following GPM? But I want to start first with, you know, you talked about GRIP, you mentioned SHS3. Um, what, what is the current state of the sort of state-of-the-art hurricane uh, research at NASA in terms of observations or field campaigns? I think the next big mission for NASA is, is one that you mentioned earlier, Tropics. It's a constellation of six uh, CubeSat uh, microwave radiometers. Um, these radiometers are, are sort of analogous to the ATMS instrument, but they're much smaller, uh, don't quite have the same frequencies, but they overlap to some extent. They provide a lot of information on the precipitation structure, at least as measured by the ice content within hurricanes. Uh, and it can, it can provide um, information on the temperature and humidity profiles in non-precipitating areas. Um, and so the, the main motivation of tropics is, is to use this constellation to get very rapid revisit microwave information. So typically with passive microwave sensors, you know, you're on a satellite, maybe in a polar orbit, you get two passes a day at most in the tropics with that individual sensor. Uh, and so you, you don't get very frequent looks at an individual storm. Uh, with tropics, we're going to have six cube sets, two in each of three different orbital planes, uh, so that we get 
as optimal of coverage as we can. And you, you don't have a fixed revisit rate the way you would have with a geosynchronous satellite like with GOES. Um, but so you'll get a distribution of revisits. And, and in that distribution, about half the time, we will have revisit rates that are less than 50 minutes. So most of the time, let, you know, at least once an hour, we'll be seeing these storms, sometimes as often as every, you know, 15 minutes or so. Um, and you will have some longer gaps in there as well. Uh, but it'll, it will allow us to be able to observe the more rapid evolution of tropical cyclones um, in a way that's very complementary to the GOES satellite. So the GOES satellite sees the, the upper clouds, you see it in the infrared or the visible. The microwave, the advantage of that is seeing the precipitation structure. And again, we'll have the thermodynamic information as well. And being able to see that evolution on these rapid timescales of the precipitation structure and its relationship, say, to the entrainment of dry air into the storm and things of that nature, um, will tell us something about the processes that drive intensity change. You know, these the intensity change is often coupled with changes in the structure of precipitation. So in rapid intensification, it's the formation of a really well-defined uh, eye wall. Sometimes you get the concentric eye walls uh, associated with an eye wall replacement cycle. And then if shear uh, gets stronger, you, you see growing asymmetries in the precipitation. But all that then gives you clues about how a storm's intensity may change. And, and so having these rapid revisits uh, will be uh, pretty amazing. So we're looking at, we, we, back at the end of June, we launched what we called a Pathfinder satellite. It was the qualification unit that was built to just uh, demonstrate the technology. Uh, we're using that for risk reduction this year to prepare for the launch of the full constellation next year um, over, over the first half of the year. And so we'll be in place for the next hurricane season in the Atlantic. Uh, and, and we are, while we can't promise to have all the data down in real time, some fraction of it will be down in real time uh, and available for, for users like at the National Hurricane Center and elsewhere. Uh, we, we've had from the very beginning strong connections to the user community trying to find ways that we can maximize the applications of these data sets. So that's, that's our near-term uh, effort. Uh, GPM, you know, it's been going for over seven years now. Uh, it has enough fuel to go potentially to the early 2030s. Um, and it, it all depends on the health of the spacecraft and instruments. Right now, the instruments are all performing fine. The spacecraft has had some uh, minor issues with some of the reaction wheels, but uh, right now we don't see any reason why it shouldn't continue for a good while. No, that's, that's good news. And shout out to Dr. Matt Sitkowski, one of the senior executives uh, with Weather Channel. I, I heard you mention something about eyewall replacement cycles. And though Dr. Sitkowski is now at the Weather Channel, I, I know some of his dissertation work uh, dealt with eyewall replacement cycles and so forth. So always a chance to give a shout out. also want to do a quick one on one because you've heard Dr. Brown mention radar and passive uh, microwave radiometers. Just if you've had a speeding ticket, you're familiar with radar, <laughs> or if you have a weather radar app, I mean, radar is what we call an active instrument. It actually sends out pulses of microwave energy that actually are scattered, backscattered off of these 
drops, raindrops or so forth in the cloud. Whereas these passive microwave radiometers are operating in the microwave spectrum, part of the electromagnetic spectrum. And so they're dealing with emission and scattering from ice crystals and raindrops and so forth in the cloud. So um, I really appreciate Dr. Brown mentioning these passive microwave radiometers and radar. It's a really fascinating area. By the way, also, if you, you he mentioned the Global Hawk earlier, Google it if you're listening to the podcast, if you've never heard of it or seen it. It's a really unique looking aircraft. Uh, and so it, I, I just wanted to make sure the listeners uh, had a chance to uh, take a look at that if you hadn't seen it. So what's next for you, Scott? I mean, I know you're busy with GPM and all of these field campaigns. What other sort of interesting research do you have going on or is all of that sucking away your research time? Um, yeah, the, the big thing sucking away my research time nowadays is that in addition to GPM and tropics, uh, I'm now the project scientist for um, the what in the Cato survey was called uh, aerosols, clouds, convection, and precipitation. Uh, we are at least in the short term referring to it as the atmosphere observing system. Uh, but it uh, came out of the decadal survey that was done in 2017 that recommended science related to aerosol distribution and processes, uh, as well as clouds, convection, and precipitation. And during the study that we did from 2018 to uh, earlier this year, uh, we basically looked at how we can design an architecture that looks at the combined science of aerosols and clouds, convection and precipitation, because aerosols are such an important influence on the microphysics of clouds and, and precipitation development. And clouds are important and, and precipitation are important for um, removal of aerosols from the atmosphere and convection uh, plays a role in the vertical redistribution of aerosols. So um, it's, it's a, a mission that's trying to look at these coupled processes uh, with uh, an emphasis on uh, several what we'll call first ever type of measurements. Uh, one of these is trying to measure uh, for the first time convective vertical motions using Doppler radar in space with frequencies appropriate to measuring vertical motion and convection. Um, also, uh, potentially a high spectral resolution LIDAR to get improved uh, aerosol profiles and properties. Um, coupling that with uh, passive microwave and uh, a polarimeter uh, that helps to constrain uh, precipitation and aerosol retrievals. Um, it's actually going to be two different projects, one in an inclined orbit and one in a polar orbit. And in the polar orbit, those measurements would be combined with a, a set of spectrometers covering the uh, UV to visible to you know, infrared and far infrared to characterize the radiative effects of clouds and aerosols. And in the inclined orbit, uh, we're really trying to get at diurnally varying processes and one of the unique measurements that we at least have in the current architecture is a pair of stereo cameras that give accurate measurements of the height of clouds. And by having a pair of them separated in time, you can look at how the height is changing, which then tells you something about the vertical motions and the horizontal air motions uh, in, at, at cloud top. And this is going to be really important for low cloud systems uh, where the dynamics of these low cloud stratostics uh, can be driven by entrainment processes. Uh, and, and so being able to characterize these motions at cloud top will tell us uh, about the, the dynamics of these low clouds. 
Um, and and we're, we're looking at potential partnerships with international partners, including JAXA, who we partnered with on GPM and TRIM, um, and also with Kness in France and the Canadian Space Agency. Uh, and, and we're also looking at developing a, a corresponding suborbital program uh, using aircraft and ground-based measurements to kind of fill measurement gaps that, uh, for things that we can't readily do from space. So it's it's a very ambitious project, uh, you know, multiple satellites on the order of about 10 different instruments. It, it kind of blows my mind to think of how big this has gotten, uh, but it, it's really an, ama an amazing um, observing system. Uh, right now, we're just in the very early stages, what we call uh, the concept phase uh, of a mission where we are trying to make sure that everything that we uh, are planning to do makes sense, is within budget, can be done on schedule. Um, we hope uh, early next year to be able to go through a review that's, that basically checks off that we, we did our homework, that this is a, a feasible concept and worth additional investigation to look at procuring the instruments and spacecraft and, and so on. Uh, looking at a, a potential launch uh, of these satellites in, in the latter part of this decade. Yeah, really, really fascinating. And, and shout out to the National Academies. You heard uh, Dr. Brown mention the National Academies and their uh, decadal survey. Just a little inside ball game here. The National Academies and NASA's Earth Science uh, Division certainly relies on and takes guidance from the broader expert community and no better place to go for that than the National Academies, who is a nonpartisan sort of rigorous uh, organization that helps uh, the federal government agencies, uh, the White House, Congress on all kinds of issues. And so uh, every so often uh, there's a decadal survey in which uh, a study of experts uh, puts out recommendations for certain missions and observables that uh, NASA's Earth Science Mission and others should undertake. And so uh, I know uh, I, I, up until last year, in the 2020, I was chairing NASA's Earth Science Advisory Committee. So heard a lot about the <laughs> decadal survey and so forth. I'm no longer the chair. I'm not, not even on the committee, but uh, really got to know that that process very well. Wow, this is really, we've come to the point where we've got to end it, Scott. Um, uh, so any place that you want to point to on the internet or place people can go to learn more about NASA's hurricane research or any of these missions that you mentioned? Yeah, I mean, they can go to the NASA Earth Science uh, websites. Um, and I, I don't know the offhand, the specific website, but uh, look up missions, you know, NASA Earth Science missions, and, and it'll uh, get you right there. And you'll see the whole host of of satellites that are not only relevant to tropical cyclones, but to a number of other aspects of Earth science. Uh, we, we only touched upon a few of the different satellites, but there, there are some pretty um, amazing satellites out there in, that are providing unexpected benefits. I, I didn't mention this earlier, but um, one interesting one is the SMAP mission, which is the Soil Moisture Active Passive uh, satellite that was really geared toward just measuring soil moisture. But we're finding that over the oceans, it does a really good job of measuring surface wind speeds, particularly in hurricanes. It's sort of grainy, low resolution, but it, it shows you what the wind field looks like um, in, in a tropical cyclone. I, I think that's an amazing um, add-on to the science to the uh, original mission. And, and so we always are looking for opportunities like that. And, and there's a variety of different missions that touch upon many different aspects of hurricane science, weather, and, and so on. So. I encourage people to, to, to just go to the NASA or science websites and, and take a look at the mission pages. 
Yeah, I, I agree. And just thank you. Thank you. And all your colleagues at NASA. I think, uh, again, the can't the planet that I, I worry most about right now is Earth. And so I really appreciate that NASA is investing its expertise and resources to help study the planet. We've got to go. But before we get out of here, it's time for our geek of the week. We like to highlight a scientist superstar, a great geologist, or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This episode's Geek of the Week is Matt Celentano. Matt is a student and has been obsessed with weather since he was little, even taking notes in a notebook when weather facts came on TV. He hopes to become a meteorologist one day, and his most memorable weather moment was Superstorm Sandy. Now, if you or someone you know would be a deserving candidate for our next Geek of the Week, check out our social media pages. Scott, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thanks for having me. And to you that listen every week, or if you're a new listener, welcome. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.